0: and not replace the church and faith community God has called you to be a part of locally. With that said, engage with us over the next 30 to 40 minutes as we dig into the Word of God proclaimed. Turning your Bibles to Psalms 51. Psalms 51 is where we'll be today. And we are in week three Of a series through the book of Psalms. We are highlighting certain Psalms and talking about. The series is called Faith and Feelings. Faith and Feelings, because we're not just creatures of thought. You feel things, you do. Even the most stone cold among us have feelings. And honestly, If if we look at the scripture and say God only speaks to what I should know and not how I should feel, then you're missing something. Sundays have got to be more, and the scripture speaks to more than just an information exchange. But it instructs us, which is what we found out in week one, it instructs us so we know how to fix our minds on the scripture. And what what it does is it shapes how we feel. So that when life hands you some lemons or uh, sour milk, you know how to respond. Even though it feels as if things are terrible, because my mind is fixed on things above, that it can shape how I feel. It doesn't remove the feelings, but it can shape them. It can give you a different perspective. And that's kind of week one. Last Um, uh, week two, actually, we talked about last week how to be discouraged well, how to be depressed and walk through dark times well, and today, we're going to be talking about how to be crushed with guilt well, crushed, so everybody here is like, man, great, picked a great Sunday come to Transformation Church. He's really going to pump us up. I believe his scriptures, this Psalms 51, Psalm 51 is going to have us leave here with a whole different view of the Lord and how to handle guilt. Um, And I hope this is painting, I hope you're painting the right picture. I hope scripture's painting the right picture for you here because um, being a Christian does not equal the avoidance of darkness, discouragement, or guilt, or pain. So if you've come and you've said, you know what, Carl, I, I want to I I become a Christian so I don't have to face discouragement, pain, or guilt, or hard times. I don't want to face those anymore, so I'm going to choose Jesus, Well, that's not how it works, and that's what the Psalms help us to realize, is that there is a constant, and that is God, and he will shape us through his word on how we view things. Um, The Psalms, they they teach us how to think. They shape how we feel. Everybody say shape. So we're going to go to Psalms 51, and we're going to read, and then then we're going to jump in here. Um, and just a, for those who don't know, the Psalms, all 150 of them, were the hymn book. They were the hymnal for the early church. Um, so they would sing these. These are songs and poems. They would sing these. Um, they would put music to them. They would sing them. And, uh, um, and honestly, this Psalm in particular, if we're going to give it a background, um is one of the very few psalms, and you'll see this when we start reading here, that give us a pinpoint in history as to when it was written or what period of time it was written about. It was, the psalms are made up of a lot of different authors, but David wrote a lot of them, and what we'll see when we start reading here is this particular psalm falls in a certain point in life where guilt was felt. And so let's read together Psalms 51. For the choir director. A psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So he the picture has been set. And this is what David writes after the fact. This is what he writes about that. Have mercy on me, O God, because Of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb. Teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me. And I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep me looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Everybody say guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal, some of you might read right, spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to the rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves Everybody say, God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire, pay attention, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit a repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices offered in the right spirit with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. To understand this psalm you have to understand the story what is he talking about now the story of david and bathsheba is a pretty popular story pretty popular story but i think for you to get the full effect i think we need to go there so if you go with me to second samuel chapter 11 second samuel chapter 11 you'll find the story if you don't want to turn there That's okay. You can look there later. But I'm just going to read a story. How many of you like stories? Anybody watch soap operas? You won't admit it in here. Okay, all right, Bobby. Yes. (laughs) My boy Bobby said, I'm in, bro. Let's go with the drama. Y'all know you like it. Uh Uh-huh. At the grocery store when somebody's like deep in an argument, you know you lean around the aisle. Uh-huh. That's right here. You're about to get it. So listen. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. I'm going to pause for a second. When God has... noticed. In the spring of the year when kings are normally supposed to go out to war, David was supposed to go out to war to fight these Ammonites. And he sent someone else in his stead. He didn't want to go. When God calls, I'll say men, but men and women, typically men, when, when men, when, the, when our hands aren't to the plow, hear me, men. I'll talk to the women here in a second. When your hands aren't to the plow, you get in trouble, okay? There is a, men were designed from creation, from the beginning of time, to go to bed tired. And men who have too much time on their hands will get themselves in trouble. I don't, for the women in the room, please don't smack the person next to you, the man next to you, um, but this is true generally, too, of all Christians. David was supposed to go to war. And he got himself in some trouble here because he, he wanted to sit back. He wanted to not be there. So just pay attention to this. David sent someone else in his stead. They, Verse 1, they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So David... He's supposed to be out working, and he's not. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. David was the king at the time, so he's walking on his roof. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. That's the first time I've said that in a sermon. I prom- I've never read that scripture, so now I'm just kind of like, whoa, you know. Then she returned home later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So let me paint the picture. David, when he was supposed to be at work... Stayed home, caught the glimpse of a woman taking a bath, said, Who is that? Called her to his house, slept with her, and got her pregnant. This is the king of an entire nation. And just to paraphrase what happens next, he panics. He panics. She says, hey, I'm pregnant. He panics. And you know what he does? He calls Uriah. You know what, Uriah, at this time, while all this is going out, Uriah has gone to work. Uriah is out fighting the battle. And David calls him back home and gives him a little vacation so he can stay with his wife and hopefully, in hopes that they'll sleep together and he can write it off as his baby. Well, Uriah, who's so devoted to the kingdom, he's so devoted, he's a devoted soldier, he won't even sleep in the same room with her. He will not lay down with her. So his plan falls through. Do you know what he does? You know what David does? You know what his next move is? I'm going to kill him. He sends Uriah. He's really dug a hole now. He sends Uriah to the front lines of the battle to ensure he is killed so that he can marry Bathsheba quickly and everybody will think everything is fine. It just happened normatively. Well, that's what he does. Uriah gets killed. He murders Uriah, this, man's, this, uh, this woman's husband. After he's arranged the death at the end of chapter 11. um, It says, but the Lord was displeased with what David has done. You think? You think? Yeah. In chapter 12, the prophet shows up. His name's Nathan. Nathan shows up and tells David this story. And this story is about this guy... To read it here, a rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb. He raised that one little lamb, and it grew up uh, with his children. Um, But instead of, uh, he cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest's. David hears this story and gets furious. He says, No, this is not right. And Nathan looks at him and says, You're that man. Talk about having your mail read. David gets busted, clear out. He gets exposed. As a matter of fact, Psalm 51 is birthed out of David being exposed for who he is a sinner. A murderer, a rapist. And you know what? That child, Nathan said, because of your sin, this child is going to die. This child is going to die. At the end of, uh, if you go on through 12, um, if you start in verse 13, then David confessed to Nathan, he said, Yeah, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, this is crazy. This is outrageous. Everybody say outrageous. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die from this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. This is outrageous. This is outrageous. The guy is taking advantage of. Of a woman, gotten her pregnant, killed her husband, and by his sin now killed a child as well. And he's lied about all of it. And then right here, Nathan just says, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And that word forgiven right here means to pass over. So the Lord just passes over it. Every time I read this, I get just twisted within my own self. I'm like, how can God do that? How can he do that? And in fact, um, I was witnessing to a couple guys at a gas station recently, because um, that's where I witness. I witness a lot at gas station because that's where the beef jerky is and the yoo okay? Don't judge me. I just, I love teriyaki, beef jerky, and yoo If you want to know what I want for Christmas. Socks, beef jerky, you hoo I'm talking to these guys, and in about 20, a 20-minute 20 span, I'm trying to just witness to them and, and one, what they cannot get over. Okay, this is what they can't get over, of all things. That God could forgive a child molester. They said, God can't be real. <laughs> I was trying to depict to them the depths at which the cross can reach and forgive. But they can't get over. So they say, yeah, so God will forgive a child molester? I said, yeah, he will. He'll forgive them. They said, no, nah, I'm out. I'm out. That's, that's it. And it's different for each of us. We each like to look around, pick out a certain sin that is worse than ours, and then say, how can God forgive that? Without even looking at our own sin. And this is how God does it. This is, and I kind of feel the same way. I mean, I, I look at these, some, some people and the, the travesty of the sin. Did you hear about this kid that just murdered his mom and his brother and almost killed his father? They, they went on a big manhunt for him. A kid. And I'm like, how do you do that? But God will forgive him. In Romans, I just want to read you a couple scriptures here, and then we're going to jump into 51 and see how David responds, how we should respond to sin. Because if, if I'm just being transparent with you this morning, I think we as Christians don't feel guilty enough for our sins. And, 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 by, that, and by that I mean we don't care. There's this huge grace movement among the church that would say, God's grace abounds so much that I don't even need to ask for forgiveness anymore. I don't need to be concerned with my sin. His grace covers me. But scripture would say completely differently that we, as a byproduct of knowing and having a relationship with Christ, should be grieved over our sin. You should be grieved over it. And and honestly, I think this is gonna be kind of rattling for most of you because you don't <laughs> the sin that you just so willfully do caused the son of God to go to a cross and die and pay a price but how does he do it how does he do it listen Romans 3, 25 and 26. I'm going to read this to you. It says, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who had sinned in times past. So listen, those who had sinned in times past, all these people in the Old Testament who had never met Jesus, Paul writes here in Romans that the cross of Christ covered it all. The cross of Christ covered it all. For he was looking ahead, hear this, and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Even over in Hebrews We see here in Hebrews chapter 8. Actually, it's chapter 9, verse 11. So Christ has now come, become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered uh, that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands. It is not part of this created world. Listen. Listen. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. You know, before Christ, people would have to find animals and sacrifice them, just the right animals, and depending on the sin, it it would cost them. That's what it cost them. It cost them to go to God for repentance And then here we find the reason that any of this is possible. Jesus, once for all, by his life and death, purchased our forgiveness and provided our righteousness. For you. Wake up. It's for you. He removed all the guilty stains by the blood he shed on the cross. And so... While salvation has been secured for us through the cross of Christ, it should not remove how a Christian responds. Everybody say respond, responds to sin. So this is going to get uncomfortable. Knock your neighbor, say this is going to be uncomfortable. Okay. David's response to his sin, and I'm going to move quickly here. Four responses to sin, okay? Four ways he responds to sin. And the very first one, um, and this, I believe, should be a depiction of how Christians respond to sin. This should be a picture. The the first thing he does is he turns to God. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. The very first thing David does as he is looking back on his sin, looking back on what he had done, he's been confronted with it. And, And I guess maybe... Part of our issue may be that we're never confronted about our sin. We're not in the word enough. I don't don't know what maybe, maybe you're not in Christian community. You know why we come to church. You know why we do this together like this. It's more than just to give you a hug. It's to confront your sin. It's to allow the weight of scripture to confront the wickedness in your heart. I can see you're really enjoying this today. I can really feel it. I feel it. But I've got to preach it. I've got to preach that sin is serious. Sin is serious. And yes, Christ died once for all to secure redemption and righteousness for us. But it should not remove the wrestle we should be doing in our flesh to put to death sin. He turns to God, and honestly, he turns to the only person who can deal with it. I think oftentimes we turn to a lot of different avenues to try and fix sin in us, when really who we need to turn to is God and say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy because of your unfailing love. You see David here, he's saying, don't forget about your unfailing love, that's why? You should have mercy on me. Blot out the stains because of your compassion. He turns to God. Number two, he prays for cleansing. In verse two, he says, wash me clean from my guilt. Everybody say guilt. Purify me from my sin. In verse 7, he says, purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. In, in, in a lot of your versions, and, and I don't like this version as much here, because it leaves out a word. It le- leaves out this noun. This noun. Everybody say, hyssop. hyssop. Have you ever heard up? hyssop? Nope. nope. Some of us have. If you've been in church a long time, you've heard it. And you just say it, but you may not know what it is, so let me tell you what it is. Let me tell you what hyssop is. Hyssop was a branch. And what they would do is if, say, your house was plagued with disease. They found cancer, or they they found some type of disease in your house. Your house became unclean. They would take this branch of hyssop, and they would dip it in blood, and when your house was cleansed, they would just kind of dab it around your house to mark your house as cleansed. It's gone. The disease is gone. And this is the picture here. This is the picture. um, That Christ has cleansed us when we ask for forgiveness. Purify me. Cleanse me. This should be our prayer. We should pray to be cleansed. I have... On many occasions, run into people and they'll say, Why Why ask for forgiveness? You know, He's already forgiven us. He already forgave us on the cross. You know, that's what He died. He, he, He provided our righteousness. And my response is always, The cross is not a reason why you shouldn't ask for forgiveness. No. The Bible calls us to repentance, the Bible calls us to ask for forgiveness. The cross. It's the confidence that he will forgive us when he asks. When we ask him, he will. That's his promise. We should be praying for cleansing. A lot of us want to pray for God to forgive us, but we don't want to be made right. God, forgive me, but don't change me. You have to move past from turning to God and asking for forgiveness to ask God to cleanse you. But in order to ask him to cleanse you, you have to recognize in you that you have something to be cleansed. Yeah. All of us. Everyone under the sound of my voice this morning. You need cleansing today. Number three. He confesses the seriousness of his sin. So he turns to God He prays for cleansing And then he confesses the seriousness Of his sin And honestly I think we're wired the opposite I think we're wired the opposite Most of us If somebody gets to point a finger in our face About our sin This is what we do We start to magnify all their sins Right Oh you got it much worse than me bro Don't come at me till you clean your house The log in your eye that's what Christians like to do. That's what Christians like to do. Let's overlook my sin and just point out yours. And, th- and then we'll ta- start proof texting scripture to make us feel better about it. <laughs> I knew it wasn't gonna, I, I knew today was gonna be rough. I knew it. And I'm preaching to myself. Because often I will rely on his grace so much, and as I'll just give a blanket, Lord, forgive me, that I stop being grieved over my flesh warring against the God who saved me. He confesses the seriousness of his sin. Just move with me quickly. Verse 3. Just a few things here. Five ways. He can't get sin out of his mind. Listen, verse 3. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. His sin is right in front. Have you ever had those? Have you ever had a sin that just keeps playing over and over in your mind? It just sits right in front of you? That's where David is. He says, day and night, this thing haunts me. And verse 4, the, number, the, the second way he confesses the seriousness of his sin, he acknowledges his sin is against God. Verse 4 Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. This caused me to pause. I said, There's a woman that has been taken advantage of, a man murdered. How does this make any sense? Well, sin at its very definition. Yes, people were hurt as a a byproduct of the sin. But listen, sin is against God. Sin is against God. You need to say that in your mind. You, You don't have to say it out loud to me, but you need to understand your sin today. The things that you wrestle with in your flesh are against God. Sin is sin because it's against God. The third thing, he vindicates God, not himself. Verse 5, for I was born, I'm sorry, right here at the end of 4. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Everybody say just. You know what he's saying here? He's not trying to deviate. He's not trying to deviate and say, oh, look at all these external circumstances, and this is how I ended up where I'm at. So you should take it easier on me. No. No. David said, your judgment against me would be just. I deserve it. Many of us this morning need to hear that your sin deserves Death. You deserve death. And it is by the grace of an almighty God that you were pardoned. There's an old song. Um, The chorus goes, uh, let's see if I can remember the verse. Um, It paints the picture of this courtroom. Um. And this judge, and this judge looks down at this man and he says, what do you have to say for all you've done? And the guy looks at the judge and he says, I I don't have any excuse. And then the chorus rings in, and then mercy walked in, pleaded my case, called to the stand, God's amazing grace. The blood was presented that covered my sin the moment that mercy walked in. We have to understand that we deserve something much different. He vindicates God, not himself. Uh, Number four, he acknowledges his inborn corruption. So he's really confessing the seriousness of his sin here in verse five For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Many of us read this verse and use it almost as an excuse. Well, I was born a sinner. It's just how I am. When this is not meant to be an excuse for you to lay before God, oh, I was made this way. No. He acknowledges that at the very source his wickedness comes from. In Romans chapter 8, let me read you something. I don't know if you've ever read this before, but I'm going to read it to you now. Romans chapter 8 tells us how serious we should take sin. In verse 13, it says this, For if you live by its dictates, For if you live by its dictates, you will die. Let me start in verse 12. Maybe it'll help it make sense. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by the way it dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death, everybody say put to death. Put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. This is how serious God wants us to take sin. He doesn't want us to white knuckle it, try and control it. He doesn't want us to just uh, put it to the side burner and say, I'll deal with it later. He doesn't say, um, we should ignore it. You know what God says to do with your sin? Put it to death through his spirit. A lot of us today are struggling with sin because you refuse to put it to death. You think, oh, I can get it under control. I can get my lying under control. I can get my pride under control. I can get my anger under control. No, you cannot. Not of your own accord. You need the spirit of the living God to walk you out of that. And then he realizes his sin is against God's internal light. Verse 6. Go back here to Psalms. In verse 6, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. You know what he recognizes? This is more than just an external issue. God, you taught me differently. I knew differently because of your spirit inside of me. Last point here, and then it's got just a few little points under that. Everybody say, still with me. Okay, I'm glad you are. So he turns to God, he prays for cleansing, he confesses the seriousness of his sin, and he moves past that, he pleads for renewal, he pleads for renewal, a mark of people who have a relationship with God. So I'm, you know, primarily this morning I'm preaching to Christians, so if you're in the room and you're, you're not a Christian in here, that's okay. Um, because I, a mark of, of a Christian. So this is what you should see in other Christians. A mark of a relationship with God. Someone who is in relationship with God. A marker of that is you desire to be changed. You have a desire to obey him. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Christians... Should have a desire to obey him. Yeah, you're not, it's not just fire insurance for me. I need him and I need him to change me. He pleads for renewal. Look here in verse 11. He says, Do not banish me from your presence. Take, don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He says, God, treat me like I'm your own. Don't just abandon me in this. I need your presence. If I am going to be cleansed like, like you desire me to be cleansed, I need your presence. He goes on here in verse 10 and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. A lot of your Bible versions are going to say right spirit. And what that means is, God, let my loyalty be with you. You know how you create a clean heart? You know how God creates a clean heart in you? You're loyal to him. You're loyal to him. God, keep me close to you. Create a clean heart. He's pleading for renewal. It's not enough. It's not enough for us as a Christian to just stop at forgiveness. We have to put it to death and ask God to renew us. And this is great. This, this rocked my world. Nudge your neighbor. Wake them up. Tell them this is going to change your life right here. Change mine. Listen. He prays for joy. I thought this was so interesting. Look here in verse 8. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Here in verse 12, it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. You know what I found very interesting in Psalm 51? In all this guilt he's feeling. And look, when I look back at Carl's past, there's still things that, that, that wear on me. I'm like, oh, God, I'm grieved over them. Grieved over them. And that's okay. I think we should be grieved over our sin. <laughs> In Psalm 51, there's not a mention of sex. Sex. There's not a mention of murder. There's not a mention of lying. But yet, all those things he did. And it all started with sex, murder, and lying, right? No. No. The sex, the murder, the lying, Or the symptoms of something else. And he says it right here Restore to me the joy of myself, of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Hear me. When you stop joying in the Lord, You start grabbing for other things. This is exactly what happened to David. He let his joy be found elsewhere. He stopped looking to God for his ultimate joy and satisfaction. And then he reached out and had to... Ended up taking advantage, destroying a woman's life. Murdering, taking away her family. Think about Uriah's father. Because his joy was no longer in the salvation of God. When joy fades, when your joy starts fading from the Lord, that's when you start clicking on the computer. That's when, when, when your joy starts fading from the Lord, all of a sudden you place tension, all of a sudden there's tension in your marriage. Because all of a sudden, I can't be the husband my wife needs me to be. Can I tell you, is that okay to say? I can't do that. I can't live up to those expectations. The only, my only hope is in Christ. That's the only way I can be the husband. That's the only way you can be the wife. That's the only way you can be the son and daughter, the man of God, the woman of God. You, You think you can do it on your own? You cannot. You have got to have your soul joy in the Lord. He prays for joy. And what I would implore you to do today is to fight to find joy in God. And I guarantee you those symptoms will go. We're so busy trying to wrestle and fight the battle of our sins. We're not fixing the issue. And that is we're not content in Jesus. He prays for joy. And I love this. Look in verse 13. He lets this go beyond himself. Verse 13 says, Then I will teach your ways to the rebels, and they will return to you. Get this. This is how David responds to sin. Lord, I'll turn to you, cleanse me, I'll confess my seriousness to you, but don't let it stop there. After you've renewed me, let this testimony bring rebels to you. That's why Carl, your pastor, stands here every single week, and I do not profess perfection. Because it is in the testimony of his forgiveness that people come to him. Because if he can save me, he can save anybody. And that's that should be your stance. Because so let me tell you something. If God can save you, he can save anybody. Verse 17. As I close, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. couple people in here today I just want to speak to directly one for those who are wrestling with guilt over sin maybe past sin maybe current I would would beg of you to go to Psalms 51 and one lean on his grace And yes, I'm so glad that you're grieved over your sin. Because I think the biggest plague across the church in America is that we're not grieved enough over our sin. That it's, um, this isn't a guilt fest. In fact, I'm talking about faith and guilt. You know, so uh, the, the cure here is not for you to leave here feeling more guilty. The cure is that you realize the vastness by which Christ has pulled you back. The depth from which he he saved you. And what an encouragement to those who may not know him today. That a broken and contrite heart he will not refuse. I love that he says, you will not reject a broken and repentant spirit. You know what that says? When you come to God in your brokenness. Now this doesn't mean you have to live in unhappiness. This just means you know who to go to. When you feel the weight of sin in your life. And you're ready to take this Christian walk seriously. And put to death some of these things. That you can go to God. With a broken and repentant heart. And he will not reject you.